0: Let's get started by thanking our wonderful sponsors who make this show possible every week. We can't thank them enough. Biolink corneal crosslinking is the only FDA approved intervention proven to slow or halt progressive keratoconus to help preserve vision. Upwards of 70% of keratoconus patients present in optometry, and thus optometrists serve a critical role in the early diagnosis and collaborative care of these patients. Please visit www.eyelinkexpert.com to locate an Eyelink physician near you. That's www.eyelinkexpert.com. With more screen usage and indoor time, myopia, also known as nearsightedness, is increasing and getting worse in children. Now, certified eye doctors can prescribe my sight one day, the first and only FDA-approved soft contact lens to slow myopia progression in age-appropriate children. Visit coopervision.com to find a Brilliant Futures certified eye doctor near you. Welcome back to part two of my interview with Dr. Bobby Simes. In this episode, Dr. Simes discusses advances in ocular surgery, including new types of multifocal implants used in cataract surgery, as well as microscopic stents used in glaucoma surgery. If you're new here and you like our interviews, press like, subscribe, share, and hit the bell to get notifications of great new interviews. And please leave comments. There are people out there, a lot of doctors, that do something called orthokeratology or ortho K okay. we call it, where we reshape the eye with a contact lens. Do you think there'll ever be a time where you'll be able to combine cross-linking with ortho K? So the ortho K sets the prescription. Ortho K is used for people that are nearsighted to, for myopia control or to reverse nearsighted. So once the nearsighted is reversed, and then to cross-link them, so they don't have to wear the contact lens anymore. And ha- have you ever thought about that? And you think that that's a possibility?
1: Yeah, I think for, I mean, from, from my knowledge, from what I remember is that ortho-K is changing the epithelium. So if we were to change the epithelium, I mean, that, that's, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but in, or, like orthokeratology is changing the epithelium, those skin cells, which grow back. So which is why, you know, LASIK, for example, uses a laser to get to the stroma, which is the place that if you permanently reshape the eye, you can just wake up and see every day versus ortho, K, you, you fix the epithelium at night, you wake up and you get to benefit that. But then at the end of the day, the epithelium grows back. And so I think that that concept of like reshaping the cornea and then cross-linking it in is what people are doing with, with topo guided PRK. Where you're you're basically doing cross-linking, making it like a jelly rancher, and then you're coming back and doing topo-guided PRK to basically sand down the edges and make it more smooth. And so, I think that that is probably the future. If we're doing a podcast in like ten years, I think prob- what we're going to be talking about is how cross-linking with topo-guided PRK has made a really big impact on these patients who have had keratoconus because if we can catch it early, they're not gonna have this massive amount of thinning and this massive irregular astigmatism. They're gonna have a little bit and we're gonna be able to combine cross-linking with topo-guided PRK.
0: And when you say topo-guided PRK, you're talking about topography yes. that helps guide the refractive procedure.
1: Yes, yes. And they've looked at this in saying like, well, what if we do it as a refractive procedure? Meaning like, what if we go for all of the prescription versus like, what if we just smooth it out um, and, and Natis and Donenfeld's group up in New York, they have shown that actually going for all of the prescription in the patients that can have that actually results in a better, better uncorrected vision, better best corrected vision, better vision without glasses, better vision with glasses or contacts. And I think that, that really those studies and there are some being done outside the United States will be able to help influence you know, what we do over the next five to 10 years.
0: Thank you for that. Now let's turn our attention to the different types of cataract surgery. What are the types of cataract surgery that are being done today?
1: Yeah, cataract surgery has changed a lot. You know, cataract surgery, you know, most common, you know, procedure done um, in the U.S. And that number is probably on pace for 4 million procedures to be done this year, maybe a little bit more. And cataract surgery, you know, historically, they used to just make one big opening. They'd take the lens out. They wouldn't replace it. They wouldn't replace the eye with any lens. And people were stuck wearing these thick Coke bottle glasses, right? In the late 60s, early 70s, they were having to be in the hospital with sandbags around them after having surgery. And now it's just a completely different experience. And I would say that the way we try to simplify cataract surgery is we have basic manual cataract surgery, where basically your doing everything manual you're going in there you're making an opening in bi you're going making a, a cataract let's try to simplify cataract first so a cataract what we're talking about is the middle part of the eye and a cataract is basically where the lens becomes cloudy and so normally it's clear and so light can come in it hits the middle part of the eye and then it focuses it behind the eye And so what we're talking about right now is the middle part of the eye, not not the front part of the eye, which is the cornea, which we're talking about with keratoconus. We're talking about the middle part of the eye. Now with the middle part of the eye, when that lens becomes cloudy, I mean, it would be like rubbing Vaseline all over your car window. It's like, you're not going to be able to see out of it. And oftentimes these patients are going into their doctor's office saying like, I need new glasses, but glasses won't work because there's still Vaseline all over the window. And so with regards to like, how do we get the cataract out? Now we have the ability to take out that cataract. And one option with basic manual cataract surgery is we just put a lens in the eye. We don't correct the astigmatism. We don't correct presbyopia. We call that basic manual cataract surgery uh, in our clinic, which is great because people don't have to wear the thick Coke bottle glasses, but if they still want their best vision, they'd still have to wear glasses for distance and up close correcting their astigmatism.
0: Explain the difference between FACO cataract surgery and extra cap.
1: Okay so, okay, so basically that's kind of what I was talking about. Basically before, let's go back to rewind to like 1965 with extra cap is basically you're making one big opening. You're just taking that cataract out. Now that we have FACO, which is basically ultrasound, we have the ability to break up the lens. So think about like a chocolate covered M&M. If you think about a red chocolate covered M&M, so you have this red color outside. And what before with the extra cap, we just took it out. Now we have the ability to peel off a small layer. You peel this like perfect circle and then you go in and you use what's called FACO. You use this ultrasound to break up. It's almost like jackhammering all this chocolate and then you're able to vacuum it out and you're left with this colored coating capsule where you can put a new lens in. So you can use in basic manual cataract surgery, you can use FACO, which basically means that you jackhammer out all this chocolate and then you vacuum it out and then you put a new lens in there. But again, that new lens is not gonna correct astigmatism and it's not gonna correct distance and up close vision, which is called presbyopia. So that's kind of extra cap, basic manual, and now we have laser cataract surgery. And with laser cataract surgery, we use a femtosecond laser, and that femtosecond laser helps to that manual process of peeling that circle off of that red capsule, the red colored chocolate M&M, that's with the laser. The breaking up of the lens, which is usually done with, you know, FACO and jackhammering it all out, is done with the laser. And then you can also correct your astigmatism at the same time of cataract surgery. So basically the astigmatism, you got the openings, you've made the opening on the cataract, you've already broken up all the chocolate, and that allows you to actually do less phaco. And because you're doing less FACO and jackhammering, you're just really vacuuming it out. What we've typically seen is that with laser cataract surgery, people actually have a quicker visual recovery. You get the astigmatism corrected, so you see better. And now that really opens up the options with regards to like what type of lens we want to use. Do we want to use a monofocal, which corrects just distance vision? Do we want to use an extended depth of focus lens, which corrects distance and intermediate? Or do we want to use a trifocal like type of lens where you correct distance, intermediate, and up close? And so with the ability to now have you know, laser cataract surgery, being able to correct distance intermediate up close, that's really opened up a lot of options with patients because I think they wanna be able to recover quick and they wanna be able to see the best that they can. And now having the ability to do that is why, I, I, I always say like, I, I'd love to have cataracts because you get to correct your, your vision at the same time. In your,
0: in, in your office and they do cataract surgery ever at this, both eyes at the same time, or is it always a, a weak support?
1: Yeah, so, so let's go back to like COVID. When we were in COVID, you know, we were trying to reduce the number of encounters. And we've actually been a really big fan of bilateral cataract surgery. So immediately sequential bilateral cataract surgery. There's actually a society out there called that. And what the, the benefit now of being able to do cataracts both eyes at the same time, it, it actually, you have to kind of rewind and you have to say, okay, well, why did they not do two eyes at the same time? And it was like, oh, well, let's put one eye in, let's put one lens in, let's make sure it's the right power, and then we'll go and do the other eye. Well, now having the aura laser, which allows us basically to take the cataract out and to retake those measurements, that's allowed us to be a lot more accurate. And so I think it comes down to an insurance thing. I think that's one thing with cataracts is there's an insurance thing involved. And, you know, with not just changing their policy to where now we have to have a predetermination of benefits or prior off before they can have cataract surgery. That's changed some things. We had a patient who was in here who was 2,200 with cataracts on Friday. And now we have to wait two weeks to get this prior authorization. So it used to be cataract surgery. Somebody had cataract, you could just do cataract surgery. Now with this new insurance change, uh, it's been really sad for some of these patients who have 2,200 vision and have to live with 2,200 vision as we wait for the insurance to okay this cataract surgery. So I think having the ability to do bilateral cataract surgery, if that became the norm, that would be great. But that requires us to be basically be doing laser cataract surgery on a lot of people so that we make sure our results are accurate. The way that you do bilateral cataract surgery is you basically do one eye. And then when you go to the other eye, the patient comes out of the room and it's like, you're bringing the patient back in, everybody's recounting. you're using different medications, you're different lot numbers everything is different for the second eye and we've um we're actually working on publishing our results um, we've submitted to the irb but you know we've done something like six thousand cases with bilateral surgery intraocular surgery with with no infections
0: patients always want to know can you do the whole cataract surgery with just a laser
1: yeah uh you have to take out the chocolate so the chocolate can be broken up by the laser, but you can just then vacuum out the chocolate. So, so the answer is you need you need the vacuum too.
0: So let's talk about uh, implants, multifocal intraocular lenses, uh, the yeah. different types. So there's accommodative, uh, there's multifocal. First, let's talk about accommodative. Uh, uh, intraocular lenses where a patient could they get their cataract surgery and they could see distance and read it's almost like any, like having bifocal glasses uh yeah. talk about the crystal lens your experience are there any other ones and are you is that the one that you're you, you guys are using
1: so i would say that with now the newer implants that are available we have not used accommodating iol in a long time and the reason for that is an accommodating IOL, when a truly accommodating IOL comes out, which means basically your eye will automatically focus from distance to up close, um, that's going to be the biggest game changer. If we could invent that tomorrow, we'd be able to retire tomorrow, for sure. Um, and so there's a big demand for that. And there are several people who are trying to figure out a way to get an accommodating IOL. And the fact is, like we know that's going to be the best lens once it comes out, but that lens is not out yet. And so there are some that say that they do accommodating IOLs but it's more like an extended depth of focus lens and so you don't see some practices are still using that some but it just doesn't give as much up close vision as we were hoping and so we actually just did research on the same person who invented the crystal lens they're coming out with a new lens that's trying to even give even more up close vision The, the lens looks like a spaceship and provides some more up close vision so I think that accommodating IOLs still have a, have a large area for improvement, but really right now with the extended depth of focus lenses and the trifocal lenses coming to market, those are really just taking over the line share of people who are getting cataract surgery. Those are the best two options I think that are available right now.
0: So talk to us about that, about the multifocal IOLs, the Symphony. Uh, the, the new panoptics. T- mm-hmm. Talk to us about that. The old Restore, yeah. the older Restore version.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: T- tell so, us about the pros and the cons of each of those and what is the experience that you've seen.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, when people have cataract surgery, if they can ha- wake up with the ability to see at distance and up close, they would love it. And so the question is, how do you help them achieve that? Now, the Symphony and the Restore kind of go back to like if you rewind two years we used to only have even though we call them multifocals more appropriately should have been bifocals right they corrected distance and up close or distance and intermediate but they would not get all three and so if you corrected somebody with a restore for example which was a distance and up close they couldn't get intermediate and at the store they were having to zoom in real close to get into the like uh like they were looking at rice or beans they'd have to like bring it in closer In conversations they'd scoot in closer and you would think why is this person scooting in close to me or you could do like a low ad like a symphony for example that does distance intermediate but not near and the patients having to wear reading glasses and they paid a lot of money to get near vision and they don't have near vision and so the the we found ways to use those lenses effectively but now with the for example, the trifocal, which the only one that was approved was the panoptics. Now you have the synergy that's out. And those are both have the same defocus curve of a trifocal. So whether you call them a trifocal or tr- trifocal like lens, um, and those get distance intermediate and up close. And so with those lenses, like if you're trying to get the best vision possible, like the trifocal type of lenses, the panoptics, the synergy is going to give you the best type of vision. The thing is the way that lens works is it has circles on those lenses. And so the circles help to split the light. So as light is coming in, you can see that light at distance, intermediate, near. Like that light is is what helps you to see. But those circles that help to split the light so that you can just wake up and see, and you don't have to do like with the progressives, like tilt your chin up and down. These lenses are placed in your eye. You just look where you wanna look. When you're looking at a light at night, the annoying thing early on is that you're gonna have circles on the lights at night. And so if you're okay with your brain adapting to those, but most of those studies have shown like 75% of people at, three, at six months report little to no halos. You're gonna have those halos or those headlight halos or those circles on the lights at night early on. So if you're okay with that and the trifocal lens during the day is gonna give you the best possible vision at night, it still gives you great vision um, we have a nighttime truck, truck driver with a trifocal because they want to be able to see a distance intermediate and near. And you, as a doctor, you get a little nervous when you hear a nighttime truck driver with a trifocal. Um, so it works well if you set expectations ahead of time and you let patients know what they're going to get. And I think that's we try to spend a lot of time with patients more so than probably anywhere else because we just want them to be happy. And so if, if you're looking at an option to get all three, that's a great option. If you're like, oh man, I just really don't want any circles on the lights at night at all then that's where the extended depth of focus lenses come in that give you distance and intermediate vision. You still have to wear reading glasses for up close, but at six months, 95% of those patients report little to no halos. So it does cut down you know, by 20% on the amount of people who report halos, uh, but it does then take away for the up close vision.
0: And, and what's the name of that lens?
1: So the extended depth of focus lenses, those are that's the Vividi. Um, the EyeHance is another one. Again, both of those, you know, Vividi is made by Alcon. Uh, the iHance is made by J&J. And then I think we'll, I, I think within the next year, we'll have the IC8, which is a pinhole IOL um, that will be out. And that will be able to be, that's another extended, true, that's really a true extended depth of focus lens. And you could use in patients who have keratoconus or uh, history of hyperopic LASIK or RK, for example, finally having an option for RK patients. That will be great.
0: And how about the symphony compared to the synergy?
1: Oh yeah, let's talk about it. So yes, a symphony, they would, uh, you would actually call symphony an extended depth of focus lens too as well. So the, the symphony does distance intermediate too as well. I guess I didn't really bring up symphony now because what we're seeing is the extended depth of focus lenses have a similar defocus curve, meaning they give similar vision, but they have less glare and halo and starburst at night. So in our clinic we're not really we're not using the symphony anymore unless somebody comes in and wants it but we're getting just the similar the same results with less uh, dysphotopsias at night so if you compare the synergy to the symphony they actually have about the same side effect profile but the the synergy gives a lot more up close vision so if I was going to go with one tomorrow I'd go with synergy because I'd want to see at distance intermediate and up close
0: and how about these UV uh lenses that that change the prescription of the of the uh, implant
1: yeah the light adjustable lens so the light adjustable lens that this is kind of an interesting uh technology where you have the ability to put a lens in and then afterwards let's say you put the lenses in and you're like i want to be a little bit more nearsighted i want to have one eye for distance and one eye for up close or maybe we're seeing something on the eye that actually nailing getting that right lens of the eye of the eye it might make it more difficult for us so maybe that's when we're going to use that Um, it's a process Uh, that's what I would say is putting this lens in you can come back afterwards and adjust it with uv light which means then that you need this patient to not have any uv light so they have to wear special glasses that company just came out with something called active shield so that they're hopeful that these patients don't have to wear sunglasses inside but maybe just outside Um, But these patients, you put the lens in, you let them heal, and then you're adjusting that lens afterwards. But this is like weeks later. And so usually we think about cataract surgery, boom, you know, you get that immediate visual result. People are so thrilled they had cataract surgery. The light adjustable lens is going to be for special patients, special eyes, but it's a special technology that will have a role um, in these special eye patients.
0: And there's a silicon fluid uh, lens that's, that's filled in the haptics. Can you talk a little bit about that and how yeah. far are we away from something like that? Or is so, that more like, uh, it, or is that more like Star Wars stuff?
1: Yeah, I know. I think that there, there are some interesting technology. You mentioned one, there's the, uh, instead of with a light, you have the ability with the femtosecond laser to come back and adjust the IOLs. So you could use a femtosecond laser to adjust the IOL. So you could adjust it with uh, making it more nearsighted, more farsighted. You could take a trifocal and make it a monofocal. You could take a monofocal and make it a trifocal. Like there is some interesting technology that, that's coming out. I think that if you talk about like, if I'm a patient or a doctor and I'm having cataract surgery soon or have patients coming out with cat- or wanting cataract surgery soon, the technology we have right now is the best we've ever had. Like being able to correct nearsighted, farsighted, intermediate and astigmatism is the best we've ever had. And the other technology that's gonna be coming out within the next few years um, is gonna be more for specialized patients. So as far as like anything coming out in the next few years, nothing that's gonna be game changing as of right now.
0: So let's talk, now let's shift our attention a a little bit away from cataracts or cataract surgery for people that want bifocals for surgery to be able to see. You've done some studies on inlays. Mm -hmm. Explain what an inlay is and how it helps people that are over 40 that are presbyopic, which have have lost their ability to see up close. And we're still looking for that magic bullet to be able to help those people with, with surgery. Where are we, how far are we away from one of these inlays actually being effective?
1: Yeah, so I think that, so just so everybody knows, like really when somebody gets into their 45, 40, 40s and early 50s and you lose the ability to zoom in up close, that's called presbyopia, right? You lose the ability to zoom in up close. And so when patients lose the ability to zoom in up close, they want a solution for that because maybe they have to wear glasses for far away and now I have to wear, you know, How do I see up close? I can't see up close with my glasses or contacts. And then you have to go to bifocals or you have to wear contacts for distance and then reading glasses on top. And it's just, that's not fun. And so historically, when we've had somebody who cannot see up close, we have a few strategies. The first strategy is to do, and we're talking about with surgery, one eye for distance and one eye for up close. We call that either mono vision or blended vision. And that works. But some people, they just don't do really well with that. So um, another option is actually to do a procedure before they get cataracts. It's actually called a refractive lens exchange, or I call that the laser lens treatment, where basically we're reusing, again, the laser to break up those cells that have become stiff, the chocolate and the chocolate M&M. And then you put that lens in, the distance, intermediate, and near lens in. So, so that is an option, um, but you have to have the right patient for that. And so some people are not ready for that, because ultimately, I think that's probably the best option for patients. So there's this like, what do you do in the middle? Like, what is the in-between option? And inlays were thought to maybe provide that option, where you do basically keep one eye for distance, and then the other eye where you put an inlay, that's going to extend the depth of focus. So the other eye would get distance, intermediate, and near two as well. And so instead of one eye distance and one eye near, you get one eye distance, one eye distance, so both eyes for distance and one eye that gets that up close near. And so that extended depth of focus was tried with a raindrop, the camera inlay that's still available, and that works for some patients. What we know right now is the cornea was having some inflammation after those were going in, specifically more so with the raindrop because that was in the anterior stroma compared to the camera, which is a little bit deeper. Um, so, so is there are going to be some potential solutions for the inlays. I think if we look about over time, it's really just coming up with a biocompatible option, number one. But number two, I think what we're going to have sooner is the presbyopic eye drops. And I think the presbyopic eye drops that are coming out either by the end of this year or early next year, that's going to provide that solution that the inlay was looking to provide. So maybe you get LASIK and then you use the drops to give you some more post-vision, or maybe you have glasses and you use drops, or maybe you have contacts and you use drops, or maybe you do a different type of surgery and you do drops. I think that the, in, the, the presbyopic drops will almost be like a, if you talk about somebody who got LASIK, they could get presbyopic eye drops, and that would last them until they're ready for the refractive lens exchange procedure.
0: Explain what an inlay looks like and how it's inserted into the cornea.
1: Okay. Yeah. So the inlays, it almost looks like a a circular disc. Um, And so basically, again, that needs to go in the stroma. So you can either create like a tunnel, you can create like a little opening and it can just go in there. Um, So I think about like a Frisbee, a really small Frisbee. looks like that. Um, So there's two ways. Either you can do it at the time of LASIK, or you can make a small opening like a tunnel and then put the inlay in that way as well.
0: So let's talk about the drops for presbyopia or people that need reading glasses when they get over 40. Uh, there's two main companies, there's a number of companies, but two main, Allergan has one which is going to constrict the pupil. Yeah. How is that gonna work? And why is constricting the pupil help people read up close?
1: Yeah, I, I don't know if, you, if, if anybody's ever been to the eye doctor, we have this thing that's called the pinhole where we, we put this little small opening in front of the eye And that allows the the ray of light to just go directly to the back of the eye and it's great because it tells us what the patient's possible vision is that same effect can happen when we make the pupil smaller and when you make the pupil smaller basically through optics and we don't need to go through a whole optics lesson here but what it does is it extends the depth of focus okay so those are the two special things that can happen with making an aperture small now, you don't want to make it too small to where you get less light coming in. But if you make it just small enough, like if you're able to reduce the pupil size by, let's say, 50%, that's going to extend the depth of focus. And we were actually involved in those clinical studies, right? Those clinical studies, like you mentioned, was that you're either going to make the pupil smaller, and there's going to be like eight companies coming out with a drop like that. The allergans going to be the first to market. Or there's a drop that you can use to make the lens loosey-goosey breaking those disulfide bonds so the lens can still zoom in up close the opposite of cross-linking the opposite of cross-linking and you make the lens more loosey-goosey and it's usually used
0: used used lipoic acid
1: yes mm -hmm.
0: which is a -a one-of-a-kind antioxidant and it does the opposite of cross-linking like you said it makes it going from the jolly rancher to uh whatever you said before gummy, the support. gummy lifesaver gummy lifesaver yes
1: yeah we um so we do we do research here and we actually enrolled the uh the first study throughout the whole world actually here in our uh, center and so we we're actually you know seeing these patients back it's gonna be really interesting i think presbyopic drop
0: study with which which one the, uh, the the one that constricts the pupil or the li- lipoic acid one that which makes the uncrosslink
1: the, we've, we've already done the study for the, the drop that makes the pupil smaller. That yeah. one's already submitted to FDA. Um, we are currently doing the study on the making the lens more loosey-goosey.
0: And how are the results so far?
1: Well, we, I, just, I mean, the, the first patient was just enrolled two weeks ago. Okay. So, so more results coming. Hopefully we can talk again about the results. But I will definitely tell you that the patients who are in the first study, which making the pupil smaller, those patients, when we had to take their drops away from them, like were crying because they were like, "Oh, I don't want to have to wear reading glasses again." Like this drop works, and so it's going to be a big opportunity for eye doctors to be able to help patients even more.
0: In the old days, before your time, when I was doing my residency in the VA hospital, we used to use pilocarpine, and we did see some retinal detachments as side effects. Did you see any retinal detachments with the uh, low dose uh, pylocarpine?
1: Yeah, it's a good, good point. Uh, no, there were there were none in the study. Um, they have worked out a way to have the pilo be less of a concentration, and the vehicle with it makes it so that people don't have that. You know, pilo right now when you put that in, it's like it can sometimes be like fire, um, and this one is it, it's m- much more comfortable. And there still is that, I think it was like less than 2% of people who discontinued the study because of a headache. But overall, when you see that data, it was supposed to be released at ASCRS, and I don't know that I've seen it yet. I haven't gone through the full program to look at the abstracts. Um, But the study, the initial study results were promising. There definitely needs to be more long term studies to make sure that this is safe for using for a long term. but initially, the initial results look really good and we're going to use it a lot.
0: And they were using one, 1.5% pilocarpine, is that correct?
1: They did, several, they did several dosing to figure out which one they should use. Um, and again, I was going to try to look at ASCRS to see which one is going to be the one that they're going to use.
0: So let's talk about let's move our attention toward glaucoma. You've done a number of research studies in glaucoma. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about some of the glaucoma surgeries. First, explain what glaucoma is and we're going to skip all the drops and and talk about surgical needs for people with glaucoma.
1: Yeah, I just gave a talk about that this weekend. So basically, glaucoma, if we had to simplify, like the biggest risk factor we know is eye pressure. So somebody who has eye pressure, high eye pressure, we're moving to the back. So now we're like in the backyard. We've talked about the front door, the middle of the house. Now we're in the backyard. Basically the optic nerve, which transmits the signal from the eye to the brain, that highway is called the optic nerve. And that optic nerve, if there's a lot of pressure, it can cause, the high pressure can like squeeze the optic nerve and cause thinning. And so our biggest question when we see glaucoma is how can we lower the eye pressure? There's a lot of this, this gets way more complicated, but we're trying to just simplify it here. So the question is, how can we lower the eye pressure? Well, I think one thing to important to know is that you have basically a faucet and you have a sink. And so a lot of the strategies in glaucoma surgeries is going after like the drain. And we know that eye pressure over time goes up but yet the the volume of water being produced goes down. So what that shows you is that the problem is the resistance is in the drain. And so the question is, how can you pour Drano to just get that water moving out more? Because if you move out that water, it's going to lower the volume, which is going to lower the eye pressure. And so, you know, the first one is this light therapy, um, which is called SLT. And SLT works 80% of the time, and when it does, it can lower the eye pressure for three to five years, and you can repeat it three to five times, and it's a great procedure.
0: Let me just interrupt you for one second. When do we, we, we start off with drops, but when do people need glaucoma surgery? And that's a, that's a, that's a very complicated answer. Yeah. Because there's no black and white, but yeah. in general, when, when are drops not enough?
1: they've done multiple studies and like patients know they're being watched right like they have like little electronic monitors on bottles to know how often patients are putting in drops and there have been multiple studies that showed like 75 percent of patients are taking their drops less than 50 percent of the time and and the the, then the patients report a far higher usage of it Um, if somebody you know if the physician ability to identify it is poor um we just know it's hard, you know, like when you have a life and you have to do all these things and you get busy and you're like me and you're in an accidental fall asleeper where you just like, oh, I'm just gonna lay down for a second, then you wake up at 7 a.m. the next morning and forget to put your eye drop in. Like it just happens. And so, you know, the question is, should drops be our first choice? You know, if if we have to put an eye drop in twice a day or we have to brush our teeth twice a day, and they said, Hey Bobby, there's a procedure that would allow you to not brush your teeth twice a day, an 80% chance of it working, and it would work for three to five years and you repeat it three to five times, I'd be like, sign me up, right? I would for sure pick to have the SLT done before I do drops. Now, obviously it doesn't work on everybody. And obviously the access to this is, um, you know, sometimes that, that's a problem. And so that's typically why drops are typically first line. But you know, the question is, should SLT be first line? And then if that doesn't work, okay, then I use drops. Uh, that's a question we could debate probably here for a long time but we're really big fans of slt and then really the biggest really the biggest over the past few years the biggest area now that we have because we have traven and tube shunts and there was really nothing in the middle is this migs the minimally invasive glaucoma surgeries that we now have which basically help us get through the resistance so you have things like the i inject which basically is like if there's a wall here and I'm trying to get on the other side of the wall, how do, I get, how do I get more fluid going through the other side of the wall? Well, it's like I could just create two openings and that's what the ice stand inject does. Now fluid is able to go through that ice ten inject and they just came out with their ice then inject W which allows even more fluid to go out through that areas. Um, there's different strategies. You can basically um, on the other side, you can make the other side that river where the water is going to, you can make it bigger. Um, with things like uh, different procedures. I don't know if you want me to go into the names of them, Um, but you can go into like viscodilation. There are several procedures that can do viscodilation. You could just knock down the wall and just rip out the wall um, with things like a goniotomy. So there, there are different procedures that you can do. Some of this comes down to, again, going back to insurance, unfortunately. And so the question is, you know, MIGs were originally talked about at the time of cataract surgery. I think iStent and all of the you know, research they've done in getting that insurance approval, many people know as MIGS as the ability to do it at the time of cataract surgery. And I think that's, if you're going to have one take-home point with glaucoma surgeries, is like, sometimes it's hard to see if somebody has glaucoma when they have a cataract. But it's like, we need to figure it out because these MIGS procedures are just too good to pass up. And if you're going to do cataract surgery, it's just equally as safe to do it at the same time. So let's just do it at the same time with cataract surgery and get not only better vision, but also IOP lowering as well.
0: So these stents uh, came from really, the idea came from people having heart attacks, regular stents, except these are 20,000 times smaller than an intraocular lens that we were talking about before used during uh, cataract surgery. Yeah. So, can, so during cataract surgery, they put one of these stents in the trabecular meshwork of the yeah. eye, explain yeah. how that works and what is, what kind of instrument is used to in almost inject it into the meshwork.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think you know there have been so the eye
0: is open from cataract yeah. surgery, and now we want to also lower the eye pressure. How does this? How do these MIGs work, and how so they, is how does that procedure work?
1: All of them are different, but it goes back down to like after you're taking the cataract to surgery on, you need to be able to visualize the angle, and so you put a gonial prism on goniosol, gonio prism. And then you're basically the surgeon is looking at the angle and of the trabecular meshwork. And they use the main opening in cataract surgery. So these are typically going to be done nasally. And so when they're going in, I mean these these devices like for example the I stent inject W, for example, the I stent inject, the I stent, they all have their special way of getting this device into where it needs to go. And so if you take, let's take the I-Stand inject W, when you're going across and you're looking at it and we do 3D surgery here, so it's really cool. You can like watch right behind the surgeon and watch what they're seeing. But you're basically going and when you're going at the trabecular meshwork, it's almost like putting a thumbtack in the trabecular meshwork. Like you just go and you just put it and then it just stays there. And then you rotate as far as way as you can possible, still through that main opening and then you just push it, you know, perpendicular Close scleral wall, boom. And then there it is. So you got one and then two over here. And that's it. Is this
0: procedure ever used if the patient isn't having cataract surgery?
1: So that's a much harder question because like, could you do it? Yeah, you could do whatever you want. Will insurance cover it? And does the patient want to pay for it if the insurance doesn't cover it? That's another question.
0: Now, how effective are MIGs? You know, cause you, you, you've heard mixed results about MIGS. Uh, uh, your experience, would, how, how this research would, shows that it's about 68% effective after a year that the low of the pressure, less than 21. What do you find?
1: I, we, I just, I presented a case in which the patient had a pressure of like 31 and was on COSAT, was on bromonidine, was on latanoprost, and the pressure was 31. And we did the iStent inject and after cataract surgery, this patient's pressure was 14. And it's like, wow, that's a pretty big IOP lowering, especially with the patient on all those drops. And what I think was happening was the patient was just not taking their drops. And we were able to get such a big IOP lowering effect. Now let's take that same patient and let's say their pressure is 14 and they're on latanoprost and they're on COSOP and they're on bromonidine. The impact that you're going to get on that patient is you're going to take them from like 14 to like 12, right? So it depends on your patient selection. Like, who are you picking to do this procedure? So I think it's with like it's like with anything, you know, like not everybody loves tacos, unfortunately, in this world. And um, the same thing with I, the MIGS. You know, some people don't like them. Why? Because they're typically they're dealing with advanced glaucoma. And I think the mixed reviews. Are coming from some people who are needing more of an IOP lowering effect. So I think you have to know what kind of IOP lowering you get a you get for different patients, and you just set the expectations.
0: Now you've done some study where studies where they've actually implanted the medication into the eye. Can you talk about yes. that? Where you compared uh, Timoptic, which is a traditional beta blocker that we've used, against one of the prostaglanders, I think it was Traviprost. And you yes. looked at the difference between the two and was there much of a difference and did they both work? And what do you think about that going forward?
1: I, I mean, I, I, I'm a really big fan on if you can take the patient out of the equation, like nothing against them because like I am, I am one, right? I just think it's gonna be easier for the patient. I think we're gonna get less vision loss because if you say like, what's the worst thing that can happen in glaucoma? The patient could lose their vision, all of their sight. And so if you have this ability, again, like, you know, for, for example, in this, we're talking about the, the eye dose device where you place a thumbtack into the anterior chamber, again, the trabecular meshwork, and then it's slowly releasing the medication. This has a bigger canister of medication, but the medicine is being released inside the eye. So it's nice because then we don't get all of those outside of the eye side effects when we're using eye drops like dry eye, for example, or follicular conjunctivitis. All of these side effects that we get when we're putting them in the eye are going to be less and so that study is still ongoing we're going to see what the results have been And our i based on the results we've seen so far like i can't wait for this to come out because it's going to be another option there is an option right now that's out where you basically can put this medication in the anterior chamber and it slowly releases um, but i would say that that medicine is a shorter term medicine than potentially these canisters that you're gonna be able to put in and release a lot more medication over a longer period of time. And in the study, we looked at the slow, slow release and the fast release one. And the results haven't been analyzed yet, but I think that's gonna help us determine because everybody's always like, well, how long is it gonna last? And like, man, could you imagine being, being able to put something inside the eye that lasts for three to five years, slowly releasing medication? Uh, that would be game, changing.
0: And it is hopefully because it's inside the eye that's not causing any side effects.
1: Uh, mm-hmm. where it could be a problem. Now,
0: how about putting the medication in a contact lens or a punctal plug?
1: Yeah, that, those are, I mean, this is all coming into drug delivery and I think these are all great. Um, contact lenses scare me obviously because of the setting that I work in. I'm just like, oh man, and then we have to have somebody sleep in them, so is it short term? I think the punctal plug I think is a a an option. I think p- putting a punctal plug in that slowly releases, that that would be also pretty easy. And we've had great results with, um, we're we're submitting our paper for um, a steroid punctal plug after cataract surgery that we saw really good results with. So I think the punctal plug, I'm more hopeful on.
0: Uh, My last question, and you've been so generous with your time. Uh, You did research with people with multiple sclerosis and changes in OCT. Can you talk a little bit about that and maybe even Alzheimer's and changes in OCT?
1: And yeah, that, I, we're so
0: shifting gears a lot here. Yeah, but this is fascinating yeah. because maybe, no, even, as in our film, the optometrist <laughs> may be the first person who's going to be able to diagnose Alzheimer's and neurodegenerative disease because of the great technology that we have.
1: Yes, um, yeah, that's where most of my research. Because um, so I got my OD and MS at the same time, and all of it was on doing neuro research with uh, Dr. Rosa Tang um, in Houston. And what we were looking at was our two questions were number one is like, what happens with MS over time, specifically within the eye? Because the eye is an extension of the brain, as we all know. And these nerves that are in the eye are unmyelinated. And, but if you get damage to the myelin, it's going to damage those nerves. And so the question was, when you have a patient who has MS and they have a medication, could you look at the eye and be able to tell if this medication is working. Because if they have damage to their nerves, which we know can happen in MS, if they have damage to their nerves and they're on this medication, but we can see it, well, maybe we should use this as a bio, as a basically, um, as a outcome measure in clinical trials to see if these medications are actually working. And so what we were looking at, because there was a new article at the time that showed that looking at the nerve fiber layer or even more specific, the ganglion cell layer would be able to tell us what was happening in the brain of these MS patients. And there's been a lot of research since um, our research and this other paper that came out on looking at maybe more specifically at ganglion cells in MS patients. And you're actually now seeing on some uh, clinical trials, the retinal nerve fiber layer or the eye being used as an outcome measure in addition to what they're looking at, right? Cause MS is really complicated and we're super simplifying it here, but using that is just one piece of the puzzle, just kind of like how we use the OCT and glaucoma as one piece of the puzzle in following patients over time. So we also did this with papilledema, right? Could we, instead of doing a lumbar puncture, could we just take a picture of their eye to tell us what the pressure of the brain is? And uh, in, our, in our research, it was like, well, no, not necessarily, but there's a lot of good research coming out with that. And it's actually quite interesting. I mean, this is the reason why I, I, I think this is the reason why we have not flown to Mars yet, because when you get these astronauts out in outer space, they're getting swelling of their optic nerve. And so the question is, like, how can we fix that? How do we monitor it? And the eye, I mean, they actually have an OCT, a Heidelberg OCT in the space station. And so I think that whether we're talking about you know space or Alzheimer's or multiple sclerosis, the eye is just you know, we've covered from front to back, really fascinating all of the things that you can learn from your eyes.
0: So when you did the research, what were you seeing thinning of the nerve fiber layer and the ganglion cell layer in the MS patients during the OCT exam?
1: Yes. Yes. That's what we know that happens over time is just, we we know that uh, multiple sclerosis is a neurodegenerative disease. And so you're going to get thinning of the retinal nerve fiber layer and of the ganglion cell layer over time. And so the question is, how can we slow down the progression? Um, And now we have a lot better treatments than what we used to have. Um, One thing we were looking at specifically in our research was how do you diagnose early optic neuritis um, and, and subclinical optic neuritis? And the ganglion cell, because it's not confounded by swelling, it's not confounded by glial cells, provide some insight early on um, when we're looking at what is going to happen from the impact of a from optic neuritis for example.
0: And optic neuritis is an inflammation swelling of the optic nerve and what did you find on the OCT in the optic neuritis patients?
1: So in the patients you know typically what happens is actually you see cell loss in the ganglion cell layer before you see loss in the nerve fiber layer which that like that doesn't make sense right like you have to lose nerve fiber layer before you lose ganglion cell layer but what's happening is you're losing the retinal nerve fiber layer but then you're having swelling and so it's looking artificially green even though there's really only this much nerve fiber layer so if you go to the ganglion cell layer that can be helpful and so in these patients you know following them with ganglion cell and the nerve fiber layer both is really helpful
0: well, I want to thank Dr. Bobby Signs for being so generous with his time. He's a wealth of information and he's one of the optometry all-stars that we have out there. And I really appreciate you uh, joining us today. If people want to find out more about you, how can they do that?
1: Yeah. So, uh, you, I mean, you can send me an email if you want, but I'm also on Instagram and on Twitter and uh, my email is just signs at gmail.com or you can find me. It's just bobby signs on Twitter, or Instagram.
0: Well, Bobby, I really appreciate you joining me today. You've been fantastic. So generous again with your time. This is Dr. Kerry Gelb for Open Your Eyes. Fitting multifocal contact lenses presents a big opportunity to meet patient needs while growing your practice. Alcon is your partner, not only with our innovative portfolio, but through e-learning, Learn to enhance your multifocal strategy today with the Alcon Experience Academy.
1: Since I bought Safe For You, my dad makes me clean his boat. It's natural y es un buen producto. Every time I go back to school, my mom always makes sure that I have my Safe For You products. I bring extra and my roommates certainly don't mind.
0: It's a good thing I had Safe For You to clean up after this little guy. When my hands get dry, I like to wash them with Safe For You.
1: And most importantly, the reason why I buy Safe For You is because it's safe for me and you.